You're listening to Behind the Lens. Well, and thank you for that, Jar Jar. Yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back. Last Monday in January. I can't believe that we're already one month down in 2017. Um, of course, after the events of the past weekend or something, I don't know how many how many more weeks we'll all survive 2017. But so thrilled to be here again. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my reviews and interviews on MovieSharkDeBlore.com, uh, in newspapers and online around the globe, uh, locally in Culver City Observer, Santa Monica Observer, British Weekly, Delray News in Los Angeles area, Beacons, Beacon Times chain, uh, Columbus Register on the Eastern Seaboard, and various other places. So, but every, every Monday you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line. And we're really going below the line today and behind the lens. An incredible, incredible guest at the Midway Point, producer Miranda Bailey, is with us. It's kind of an awards-themed day uh, as we're counting down to the Oscars and one of my favorites, the Spirit Awards, which is always held the day before the Oscars uh, on the beach in Santa Monica. And uh, today we've got Miranda Bailey. Miranda is no stranger to the Spirit Awards. She is uh, one of the gems of independent film as a producer. Uh, This year she is a producer of Swiss Army Man that starred Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano, uh, which is nominated for a Spirit Award for Best First Feature for co-writers and directors Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. So Miranda will be here to talk about that. But some of the other films that I also want to speak to her about that she's had over the past couple years. Last year, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, another independent gem, independent spirit awards, uh, other nominations in a rant in fair on the awards circuit uh, with Belle Powley, written and directed by Mariel Heller. Don't Think Twice is also another film that Miranda has produced. She's been producing going back to The Squid and the Whale, as well as the very super James Gunn with his uh, superhero film, Super, uh, in the pre-Guardians of the Galaxy days. Uh, And, of course, one of my all-time favorites, uh, an incredible film from Oren Overman, cinematography by Bobby Bukowski, Time Out of Mind, uh, starring Richard Gere breathtaking film that we just saw unfold within the past year. Uh, and it, it is available on uh, <clears throat> on various platforms and on DVD. I can't recommend Time Out of Mind highly enough. So we'll be talking to Miranda about all of this and more uh, when she joins us at the halfway point. But before that, Brian, do we have a Star Wars countdown today? We have a Star Wars countdown every day up until... They stopped blessing us. You know, is there any news? Before we do the countdown, is there any new Star Wars news that you've heard? Uh, Not news, but uh, the internet. I don't know why I'm cutting out. Uh, The internet was running rampant when they came to the. I guess somebody realized that when you look at the two titles for the newest films, they spell out a sentence. The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi. And I, I like that, but I don't know. That's kind of a stretch, but. I don't know. I, I like, at the same time, I'm really excited that, that that might be a possibility, that it might wake up The Last Jedi. And I think we discussed it on my show, uh, the differences of the of the poster and, yes. and and all that. That's what we had last week. So this this week, I was a little quiet on the Star Wars front after releasing the trailer and letting people digest that. Uh, I'm waiting. I mean, Super Bowl would be the best time to drop a teaser. It, it would be really nice to see something. And, of course, because of the weather, you have not back, been back to Disneyland lately to uh, – to check the progress of Star Wars Land, I did. I did uh, go on Tuesday, and I actually did film the construction of Star Wars Land. There is rock formations, so it's kind of like they dug into the ground. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they have to, and there and it looks like there's rock formations being put around the uh, the cap. So the place where you, I mean, I'm sure you can get a better view from where I was at from the parking structure, but I was I was looking at it from Splash Mountain, and you can see that there's like a quarry 
being built. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to be part of that unknown planet that they said was going to be a, a, an attraction there or if that's just going to be the basis of a, of a planet. Mm-hmm. But it's it's coming pretty quickly. It's it, they're, they're moving really quickly with the construction. And it's kind of hard for them to hide what they're doing. So I will I will come back with a with a better prognos- uh, better photos. I'll, I'll look at it and I'll, and I'll let you know what's going on. But the cool part is that they're opening up the railroad, which will give you another look inside the construction. Oh. I guess they had closed the railroad down in 2015. I think it's right. been too long. They have to open it up because one of the conductors was telling me that, yeah, we're opening up in the summer and it has to cut right through there. Right. I'm sure they're going to have a hard time not hiding what they're very doing. nice but I'm, I'm excited yeah star wars but until until the last jedi we have 318 days 12 hours and 53 minutes to go it it it, 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 it feels you know like a galaxy far far away but in reality it's not no as we're seeing we're already through the first month of the year you know um since january 20th this has felt like the longest for like four or five days uh, yeah, like 10 days of my life. Uh, I know we're not a, a political program, but boy, has it been just one punch after another. But Star Wars keeps me happy. Uh, Star Wars keeps everybody happy. There's a, a hope if you watch Star Wars there. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, did you hear anything about Star Wars? I mean, Rogue no. One is starting to wrap up, so that's starting to simmer down a bit. No, I know some people that are finally getting around to seeing Rogue One. And I had to talk a couple of friends into watching it because they, they were, they were, their mentality was like, well, it's not a Star Wars film. But it's entirely a Star Wars film. It fits within the... It bridges, it essentially bridges the the prequel trilogy with the original trilogy. I had a friend ask me, like, give me one character that'll, that'll make me want to go watch that movie. And I was like, Alan Tudyk character. Oh, yeah. That, that'll, that'll make you stay if you don't like anything else. And when he, when he came out of the movie theater, he was like, you were right. That, that was one of the best robot characters in, in that pre-era Absolutely. It was great. He said it was fantastic. And I still have to get a, 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 a doll. Uh, Disneyland starting to sell them a little bit cheaper now. They're starting to drop in price, but not too much. But Disneyland, yeah. that they're, they're ra- I can see them because they just changed the star- uh, They changed Tomorrowland again to Star Wars uh, season, uh, f- season of the Force. Oh, okay. So they do that every, every before every May. Uh, before the month of May, they, they change it all to Star Wars theme. And as you know, they changed Space Mountain to Hyperspace Mountain. So that's been a mainstay of Star Wars. Of course. That's no longer just a ride. Because we will forever remember Han Solo jumping into hyperdrive. Yeah. And I've, I've, I'm, I'm scared of that ride, but I've, I've seen videos of it. And it is, it does look pretty interesting, but I'm not going on it. Oh, you will one day. Uh, I, I, oh, you know what? I, I'll do it if someone feels me doing it and, and we can make a segment out of it. But for the most part, I'm not doing it for myself. Oh, my God. Uh, but that's Star Wars news. And... Um, Yes, Brian is our resident Star Wars news since he is at Disneyland all the time and he sees these things unfolding firsthand. You can't hide them from me. So, you know, you want Star Wars news? The up close and personal way, behind the lens has it because Brian goes behind the whatever. Behind the curtain? Behind behind the land? Oh, we kept the BTL. Yeah, behind, behind, <laughs> behind Disneyland. Behind Disneyland, yeah. Sometimes I get escorted out of where I'm at, but I get the scoop. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, another scoop, because we are in awards season now. Um, when Rogue One came out, you already heard from one excerpt of my exclusive interview with cinematographer Greg Frazier, who was cinematographer on Rogue One. And also on the now six, six Oscar-nominated film, including Best Picture, Lion. Uh, you've heard me talk about Lion s- several times. You've heard from the composers, Dustin O'Halloran and Volker Bertel- uh, Bertelman, a.k.a. Hauschka, uh, and how they use prepared piano to create the beautiful score. Uh, they have an Oscar nomination for Lion. Um, Best Supporting Actors, Dev Patel and Nicole Kidman, each have an Oscar nomination. And Luke Davies has a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. But Greg Frazier also has a nomination for Best Cinematography. So, and you know, when you watch the film, when I saw it long before it ever came out, you just know there's something about the emotional palette that his visual storytelling creates. 
and it's something very, very special to capture a very special story. And I had a chance, and he also has picked up for his work on Lion, in addition to an Oscar nomination, a BAFTA nomination, and the American Society of Cinematographers. So this is, after all of Greg's years of exemplary work from Bright Star with Jane Campion, Zero Dark Thirty with Catherine Biglow, The Boys Are Back, charming movie starring Clive Owen. It's about time we see Greg Frazier really getting his due for his work with Lion. So I had a chance to sit down and talk to Greg. So we're going to listen to quite a few excerpts of our 30-minute interview right now, starting with the emotion of Lion. This is so human. It is so beautiful. It is so full of life. And it's because of your camera work, your lensing, that within the first few frames, because of the fact you're shooting from little Saru's eye line, Mm -hmm. It's within minutes. You just this is a film where you don't get choked up watching it. All of a sudden, tears are just streaming down your face. Yes, yeah. And it's that that imagery in the very beginning of the film that sets the whole stage. Uh, Listen, thank you for saying that. I I I, I agree with you in a lot of ways there because um, you know it's such a such an honor being able to give be given a story like that and to be able to impart as much knowledge as I've got, which is not that much, but I've got some, and combined with the knowledge that Garth's got, he's got a, a lot of in, in, innate kind of sensibility when it comes to lensing and, and framing. So to combine those two skill sets and our multiple years of working apart and together, um, and then you're standing there in a field in India, right, just starting on a lens to shoot this little boy in, and to know that it then works, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's rewarding because you know it's it's also such a rewarding story to 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 to, to apply your skill set to. You know, we we all do commercials. You know, as mm-hmm. a as a you know, and I, I won't say it's a way of making money because actually I enjoy it. I think it's really fun to do commercials. Um, and you know, you strive for the same emotion in commercials when you need it. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to get choked up in thirty seconds or a minute. Yeah, possible, but it's hard. To do that with such a strong character like Sunny and Dev and Rooney and Nicole, and, mm-hmm. you know, like it's such an honour as a cameraman and a director of photography to be able to sort of have those actors come in front of your camera and for you to make decisions about mm-hmm. what lens should be applied to them, what angle should be applied to them. You know, you said before, like shooting everything at Sunny's level, I mean, it's a very conscious decision to be above sometimes. We rarely went above. In the orphanage, I think that's where we first started to see a shift, and you had a lot of overhead mm-hmm. shooting down, making everything's really starting to look much bigger yes. to him and yep. more distant. And it's a great transitory style that takes us into years later with adult de- with adult yeah. Saru, yeah. his dad. Yep. Well, I mean, at the start of the movie, the world is so his oyster. Like, he's a little kid with no stresses. He's got his big brother... Like he is just a, he's a little lion, like he's a little, little, you know, little, little gun for hire. Um, but then watching that kind of unfold where, you know, he becomes trapped on a train, we still tried hard not to make him a victim either. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy, I mean, I don't know if you've met little Sonny, but no. he's such a little, such a little fine-boned young man, and a year and a half ago he's even smaller. And he's like, like a, he's tiny. And so it's very easy to kind of make him you know, vulnerable. It's very easy. I mean, that's that's kind of the, his natural state. You put him in a street in, in downtown Hollywood, he'd, he'd look vulnerable. So, you know, in a, in, a, in a subway, in a train station in India, yes, he looks very vulnerable. And the little Sonny that Greg and I are speaking about is little Sonny Pawar, who, if you've seen any of the award shows this season, is an absolute charmer and delight, be it at the Golden Globes, be at the Critics' Choice Awards. And uh, I am sure that we will be seeing him at the Oscars, even though he is not nominated uh, for an Oscar. Of course, I think he should be given a special juvenile award for his performance in Lion. He is just the sweetest thing in the world. And Greg's camera and his lens really capture the heart and soul of what Sonny brings. And a lot of it's due to that, maintaining that eye line perspective of a five-year-old. 
which then changes as he grows up and we see him in the form of Dev Patel. But one of the big secrets for any cinematographer is having a director that you can work with in order to establish the visual tone, the tonal bandwidth of emotion and visual melded together. This is what uh, Greg had to say about working with Garth Davies. In addition to a very human, you know, palette that you're creating, there's also the visual landscape. You have the emotional landscape and you have the visual landscape. How do you attack that? Because you've got the vibrancy and the life of Kolkata in India and then the bigger train stations, Mm -hmm. your huge bridge sequences. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, you go all the way to Australia for a much brighter, cleaner palette. Well, the palettes themselves, this is the good thing about it. I mean, you have to talk more in depth with the production designer, but the palettes themselves pretty much existed. That is a the, what the countries are, effectively. You know, Hobart doesn't look much different to that. I mean, of course they were designed and the, the colors were, were, were right. chosen, and but... That's pretty much them in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. What we did is basically just select what not to shoot, not what not to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, um, the, the 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 semblance of like the, the emotional journey and the visual journey, which is something that I give you know Garth a lot of credit for. I mean, he is a master at that. He's he knows his visual language really well, mm-hmm. but he also knows his emotional language. Like he, I don't know if you get have you had a chance to speak to Garth or Will, but no, I get you first. Oh, cool. Well, when you speak, <laughs> speak to Garth, I mean, you'll you'll discover he's such a he's such a like a, a, a warm like warm energy. Like he's such a, a, a giver of light and a, and a and a taker of love. Like he's such a, a warm person, and I think that comes through in the movie. I think because. He just emits that light, that lightness, that love, that kind of... That's what, who he is. And, you know, some, some directors are a lot darker as people. Mm-hmm. They're a lot kind of insular and darker. And you can kind of tell that in the films because that's what they are. Garth's the opposite of that. He is he's a giver of light. And so... But he also understands a visual journey and a visual emotional journeys. Mm-hmm. So as a cinematographer, to be, to be working with that... That level of direction is... I mean, that's why I've just done Mary Magdalene with him. That's why when he calls me in the next one, I'll... <laughs> unless my wife says, no, you can't go away, like, I will probably be working with him because, you know, I just... I, I, found, I find our, our relationship to be very, very intuitive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can pretty much sort of, with, with a few words from him... Take a take something and run with it, and get the emotional journey that he's after. Mm-hmm. How logistically challenging was this for you, particularly when shooting in India and yeah. with the bigger, quote unquote, set pieces such as the bridge sequence, yep. Yep. the river? Because I, that is never an easy thing to do. No, especially not in India. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can block off the little bit of Sunset Boulevard up the road. And have a pretty good shot of getting Sunset Boulevard looking natural, but you, it's hard to. You'll always get people looking. I, mean, I did the Gambler here a few years ago, and we, we were shooting in the car with um, John Goodman. And I mean, it's impossible to get people not looking in the cars. Like we're in Hollywood, man. Yeah. Like if everyone was like giggling and like you think that it'd be a, such a daily event that everyone would just go, "Oh, camera!" Like no, nah, John Goodman, ah, Mark Wahlberg, who's that guy? But no. That's what happened. But in India, doing that is far, far greater challenge. So a place like shooting by the river mm-hmm. meant that we really had to lock that lock that down, put our own extras in there. Um, we had to really control what everybody was doing. And there, therein lies another challenge because India is not a place that you can tame, where you can control. So you really want to get the balance of non-control with some control. Mm-hmm. Um, so the river, you know, him walking along the river... You know, we had some control on, but then him in the train station, we had no control on. <laughs> so what we did is we had him go up to people and go, Ganestale. Uh, yeah, whereas in the train station, like, we were filming him with a hidden camera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a camera that was built into boxes, and the boxes were on the back of a rickshaw, and, the, you know, my group would move the rickshaw around and be in the back of it with a radio going, go left, go left, go back, 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 back. And no one on the train carriage would know that we're there. Mm. They'd think 
the, the catering tent over there was where the film was happening, so they'd all be hanging around watching the... And we were actually filming with one camera and one little boy right over there, and no one would know. So that was the trick, is trying to create a diversion. So people knew we were there as a film crew, Mm -hmm. but not that I was there. Because he looked like a street kid. I mean, you know, clearly he looked like somebody from the street. So literally nobody took notice of him. Wow. Which is funny and strange and, and no, you know, not casting dispersions, of course. But, but it's sad. You know, you think about it, if someone came up to you in Central Station in New York or, you know, a little five-year-old and said, blah, 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 that you couldn't understand, you'd be like, where's your, where's your parents, mate? And if you couldn't understand them, you wouldn't just go, oh, disappear, I don't want to deal with you. But that's it's a, again you can't just, you can't judge or dispersion because it's like a different society. So. Mm-hmm. And you know, for all you filmmakers out there that are listening, Greg's giving you some great tips here for shooting in the field, especially if you're heading off to India. Um, but another part, another aspect of lion, particularly once little Saru is grown up and Dev Patel takes over the performance. Close-ups. Close-ups are so key to the emotional connection and immersiveness within Lion that helps make it the Oscar nominee that it is. And, of course, Greg and I started talking about close-ups, had to move into the gorgeousness of Dev Patel and what he went through. Greg had great insight into what Dev went through to transform for the part of the adult Saru Brierly. So let's take a listen. And eventually we do come around to talking about lensing. I'm curious as to what lenses and what cameras you ended up picking for this because as we got, granted, we're at little, we're using Sunny's Island yeah. first. Then once we have Saru grown up and Dev is in there, a lot of lot of close-ups, yep. very extreme close-ups, and I have to say, the way that you lens a face is pure magic. Oh, beautiful, thank you. So what... I have some lovely faces to lens, I will say that. Did, did, I mean, you what? sure did, and I'm looking at that, and I'm like, when did Dev get so gorgeous? He's a handsome man, isn't he? You never would have thought that no. when we first saw when Danny plucked him out yep. for Slumdog. It's like... No, he's, he's really found his feet from a... From a I mean, he, he bulked up really beautifully for that as well. Like, he, his, his brief, I think, and speak to Garth about that, but Garth's brief to him was he needed to he needed to become an Aussie bloke. He yeah. needed to become, like, he, he, he needed to bulk up. You know, Australians generally, vast generalization, but are a bit bigger, either either chunkier or muscular, like they're either sportier or whatever. So, yeah. so I think he asked Dev to bulk up and... Dev did, and he worked out, and he got really good. The first time I met him was in India for, I think the first scene he did was uh, going under the bridge, mm-hmm. going under the bridge on the way on the way to the, the village. So I think that was the first time either I'd met him or he'd come on set. So it was the first time I'd seen him. And I was like, wow, that's not the Dev that I know. <laughs> uh, he looks good. He looks really good. Wow. Yeah. So how, what lenses did you end up end up selecting for the different we, sequences because you've got the different lighting in Australia from the lighting in India? Yeah. And we actually tried to keep everything the same because I didn't think there was any doubt about when you cut back to India, you know, whether it's past or present, like... The story is incredibly linear, actually. If you if you take out all of the times he's having imaginations of what's going on in India, it's incredibly linear. He's in India, then he's in Australia, then he's in India again. So it's a very linear story like that. Mm-hmm. The flashbacks needed to be make sure that we didn't feel like they were foreign, that they were still part of the same language. So the same lenses we used. What we did do though in Australia, we used an anamorphic lens for some more of his close-ups. Mm-hmm. So there are times where he, you know, his hair gets longer, his beard's there. He's getting a bit more kind of raggedy. He's a bit more emotional. Those the anamorphic lens that we used kind of got into his brain a bit more. It got kind of like a like a knit burrows into your back of your brain. It's like felt like we were a bit more kind of in there, mm-hmm. a bit more like that bubble that sometimes people feel if they've just been through uh, you know through tragedy or through, if they're incredibly preoccupied or something. They're, you're walking down the street. I mean, I know what it's like if I if I travel and I'm jet lagged. And I might be walking down the most beautiful street in Paris, and 
you know, it's like one in the afternoon, but my body thinks it's four in the morning, and I'm like walking around going, this should be the most beautiful street in the world, the sun's here, and the people with baguettes and French women. But you just, you're in a bubble. You feel like you're in this kind of kind of other world. Mm-hmm. So it's to try and give that feel, try and make him feel like that. And for all of you uh, technically oriented cinematographers and directors out there, Greg goes into some very great specifics about the lenses that he did choose to shoot Lion. We're using primes. So how techy do you want me to get? Get as techy as you oh, want. Cool. I guess that was the reason for me asking. Okay, so I can be, sometimes, um, it's good to know, because sometimes I spend four minutes rabbiting on about something and someone goes, right, so you shot on digital. Thanks very much. I just thought it was one. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. I understand the grinding, the anamorphics, the G-series, the F-series, the S-series. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, yes. So we shot on, on P-Vintage Panavision lenses, um, which are the really nice. Because they – I remember when they first – I first discovered them in Australia. Before they were P-Vintage, they were these kind of this old set of super speeds and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were really beautiful, cheap lenses, but they were fantastic. And I said to Panavision, I went – these lenses are really great. They're, they're technically not very good because they don't have marks on each side and, and they're really cheap. I said, why don't you just rehouse them and bump the price up? And they did. But they also made them really fantastic. As in, like, technically they are just, like, magic and they're worth every penny. Yeah. They're fantastic lenses. Um, but, the yeah, we used those. We also used a G-Series 50mm anamorphic mm-hmm. for all of the insular internal brain stuff. Mm-hmm. We also use that same lens occasionally for, to do wide shots. So if we were in here doing a you know, wide shot of this hotel room and we wanted a 25mm spherical, well, we'd just put the 50mm anamorphic on and it would give us the same width and it wouldn't bow at the edges. Mm-hmm. It gave us some depth, some beautiful anamorphic depth. And, of course, when you've got lenses, hand-in-hand hand with lenses, are your cameras. So what cameras did Greg Fraser use to shoot Lion? What cameras were you guys using? We used the uh, Alexa XTs and we used the Alexa M's and we used the the Red Dragon for the drone work. Mm-hmm. Nice. How was that Red Dragon for you? Great. Great. I love it. I mean, it's uh, it does look different to the Alexa, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I, I just think it's fantastic. Again, it's, it's another tool, you know, it's another tool that in your toolbox. It's the uh, it's the old adage about everybody debates what's best film, digital, Alexa, Red, Sony. They're all great. They're all great in their own way. Like, I, I hope one day a director calls me and says, I've got a brief. I want to shoot a film on my iPhone. That's my brief. I would lap that up and run with that in a second. Even though, you know, it's a, it's a massive challenge. Like, mm-hmm. the iPhone, as much as any other medium, has the ability to shoot great drama. Just because it's a professional camera, I say that in inverted commas, or film or whatever, it, it buys us some more credibility and it's, yes, it's probably better to focus pull, it's better to, but it, I should be able to create the same emotion mm-hmm. on this phone that I created on, on that Alexa. I should be able to. Mm-hmm. I have never tried it. <laughs> and hopefully one day he will. But, you know, for all of you, everybody out there who is thinking of doing We've already seen one film last year that was shot on an iPhone. But to get something with the with the range and emotional depth of a film like Lion, such as Greg is, is referring to, uh, I know a filmmaker right now in Chicago, Kelly McClung. Kelly is actually experimenting with doing just that, you know, getting, you know, big screen quality emotional storytelling shooting with, uh, with an iPhone. Or he may be using a Samsung. But... It's the same principle, and uh, I am curious to see how his venture turns out. But, you know, Greg's got a lot of great competition here for uh, to pick up his Oscar. He's, run, he's going up against Linus Sandgren, who, cinematographer on the outstanding La La Land, James Laxton, Moonlight, Brad Young, Arrival, and Rodrigo Prieto, for Martin Scorsese's Silence, another. Each one of these is so stunning in their own way. And one of the great keys about this group of cinematographers this year is that, the, is that they tell a story. Their, vis, their visuals, their images that they capture tell a story. They're not vacant. They're not empty. They're not just serviceable inter, 
images. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, at the Oscars. So uh, there you've heard a little bit from Greg Frazier on his approach to Lion. But right now, right now, we have her live, Miranda Bailey. Hello, Miranda. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I, I made it in time for the call, so, you know, that's always a positive start. The way you run around... <laughs> I mean, you, it's like you're booked solid. It's been a busy couple years, but I'm trying to slow down a little bit if I can. Well, you know, a busy couple <laughs> a busy couple years. Last year, you had Diary of a Teenage Girl. You yeah. know, which was an absolute indie darling. You got Spirit Award, you know, recognition yeah. with that. You got Don't Think Twice. One of my ultimate favorites, Time Out of Mind, that you did with Oren Moverman. Thank you. I love that one. That one is one of the most stunning films. And what Oren and Bobby Bukowski did. Yeah, Bobby's incredible. It's just crazy. And it was really um, awesome to be a part of it and watch it. You know, I've never made a movie like that where everything's shot from, you know, hundreds of hundreds of yards away. <laughs> I know. And the way that... Bobby used, you know, windows, layers of windows and mirrors yeah. and then stripped away at Richard Gere's character as he became more in touch with humanity again. Just Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing about that is the last is my connection okay? Oh yeah. Okay. It's kind of crackling on my end, but um the other thing about that that's so brilliant I think is that the only time the camera moves in the whole movie is the very last shot. Mhm. Which was, you know, and that last shot—that cool. last shot is just your heart stops. Yeah, your heart stops. But you know, you also—you're one of the people who was behind James Gunn before he became James Gunn, creator of Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. You know, you were a producer on Super. Yeah, yeah. I guess he's Super. <laughs> He's very super. What what is this? I mean, you have this gift, it seems, Miranda. You know, because now you've got the guy, you know, you're behind Swiss Army Man with Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert as writer directors. I mean, what is this gift that you have for for spotting, you know, all this talent be, before they come become so huge that they'll probably never come to you to produce a film again? <laughs> I know. I was like, it's such a gift that they go from me to big paychecks and I stay at the small paycheck. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I think it's just because um, I, I like things that are unique and I, I, I like taking risks on talent that maybe the industry is um, afraid to because there's no model for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you never know when you, you're going to make something, if it's going to be successful or not. I mean, everybody who makes a movie, whether they're a director or a producer or even an actor, like everyone thinks maybe this is going to be good, maybe this is going to be the one, right. and then, you know, some work and some don't. Um, for me, it's just kind of like this amazing learning process just in my own filmmaking and um, watching all the different types of filmmakers that there are and cinematographers that there are and actors that there are. I mean, there's no, there's no mold. So uh, I don't like to do movies that fit in a mold. Mm-hmm. You definitely take, you take risks with the films that you do pick. You know, Diary of a Teenage Girl, you walked a very thin line with developing this relationship with Belle Pally's character and Alex Skarsgård's. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a risk. That was a risky move, but it it worked to your advantage. It played out. Yeah. I mean, we knew that it would be, you know, the challenge is to make sure that um, Alex's character didn't come off sleazy and that you could have empathy for him, but at the same time know what he was doing is wrong. And not many actors could have pulled that off. Mm-hmm. And it felt like he was doing the right thing when we were watching it on set. But you never know. You're like, okay, how's it going to work out in the editing? And um, fortunately, you know, Mari and um, our editor, who I think we were also calling Mari, Marielle or something like that, (laughs) 
was there was like a, a lot of Mar- Maris on this movie, but um, Marie was her name. But um, you know they did it, so it was great. But obviously, you know we had to be really careful with that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now here you've got Swiss Army Man. Um, you've got Daniel Radcliffe, which to many people, Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, this is a shoe in. It's not because Daniel also takes risks and playing a dead guy. Um, it's kind of risky. <laughs> that was not easy. You know, I mean, we really didn't know if we were going to get the movie made. We had definitely had a third of the fu- or half of the funding, like four or five weeks out. But then we didn't necessarily have the other half until about then. And then, of course, at that moment that we got the other half, we also got another partner. So we had, like, three partners, you know, a month before start, you know, shooting. So we did have Daniel Radcliffe. And before Radcliffe came on board, there was another actor that we were looking at um, who, you know, had a name for himself as well. But he didn't want to rehearse. <laughs> How and do you, all of us, how do you, you not know, rehearse we're in for this? Room film. And we were like, we can't do this movie with this person, no matter how great he is, because you can't make this movie without a rehearsal. And most movies, we don't have rehearsal, but in this kind of movie, you have to be able to do that. Well, for everything, you know, as as Daniel's character of Manny, as he takes on all of these special skill sets <laughs> yeah. as a as a dead person, you know, that requires man. That required a lot of, you know, that requires rehearsal, but also because you've got to then plug in a lot of VFX in there, too. Well, you know, a lot of what we did was practical as well, Mm -hmm. combined practical with VFX. So, I mean, you had an actor who was incredible physical actor, which is, you know, a, a, a mandatory for that role. And then you had these two just crazy genius directors who had been practicing in their short films and their music videos and their commercials for this movie for the last three years. Mm-hmm. So they, they were able to, you know, we, we saw that this was going to work, these ideas that were written on the page, that they were going to work from actual examples that the Daniels could show everybody and say, look, this is how we're going to make your mouth you know, shake, we're going to stick a blower in your mouth and look what happens. You know what I mean? Like, so you're able to see all these things that actually work. It was crazy. I mean, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that was happening. Yeah, I, I thought I was like a good filmmaker, and then I watched that, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I don't even, like, on set, it was insane. It was I'm, insane. I mean, what you see on screen with Swiss Army Man, it is truly, it's mind-blowing, especially because of the amount of practical effects that are also used. Yeah, you know, and that's that's why I feel like it works that way. I mean, if we had more money, I think we would have done more with the bear scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know, you, you got to work with what you got. You got. What is it about Dan Kwan and Daniel Shiner that gave you the feeling that they could pull this off? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I can't tell you what what it was. It's not like you, you you know like you just vibe things out. So it's like sometimes you get a feeling like oh I trust this, or sometimes you're like ah, I'm not so sure, and you just have to listen to your feelings. And um, I felt that this was something from the second I heard the idea from the producer Lawrence Ingley because he was on the project as a producer first, and he told me about it, and I was like I'm I'm in. Before I even met them, I don't know why. What did you think when you first read the script? <laughs> well, uh, I read it the night I was told about it, and I handed it to my my producing partner um, Amanda the next morning, and I said, um, "Just so you know, this is our next project, and I know it's really weird, but trust me, you're going to meet the guys, and it's going to be great." <laughs> and she came in after she read it, and she was like, "This is." craziest thing I've ever read in my life. I was like, I know they'll be in at three. <laughs> and I mean, they could have come in and had a really horrible meeting and we could have been like, oh, never mind. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but um, they came in and they had their producer, Jonathan, um, with them. And so actually Jonathan was the first producer on the project, but Jonathan was with them and just the three of them and Lawrence, they just, they knew what they wanted to do. And it was something Amanda and I wanted to be a part of. 
You know, so now, because you're a very boots on the ground producer. You're, yeah. you're not a producer that goes and sits in the office and says, bye guys, go have fun. Oh, uh, maybe I should. It, sometimes <laughs> maybe you should. <laughs> How do you approach? My husband wishes so. <laughs> How do you approach producing a film like this? That, you know, is, it's very physical. There are a lot of practical effects. And it is essentially a very intimate story as well. Well, there's lots of different things to take into consideration. Obviously, it's similar to how you would produce any film, which is in in independent landscape anyway, which is that you have to assess what the value is of your film based on the actors, the story, and the directors. So we had a story that was totally uncommercial. We had two directors that were essentially non-commercial because they hadn't proven themselves yet. So the only thing that we could really do is heighten it with cast. Um, And because they had made so many shorts and music videos that the cast liked, it was easy for us to get Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe because they were familiar with their music videos. Mm -hmm. Um, So once we had the guys... Then it's about, you know, you assess what the value is of your film. And the way that I like to do it is I like to get some foreign sales estimates and kind of see where you're at. And if they're all relatively the same, then you're in a good position to make an assessment as long as you kind of lower it by 20 or 30%. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we knew what we needed. Well, I mean, I wanted to make the movie for a lot less than we did, but you, there's a point where you can't, you know, because I wanted because we had half the money at one point. We were like, let's just make it by ourselves. But it was we were unable to do everything that we wanted to with the money that we did have. So we needed to get more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be really careful because so many movies are made for more than their value in the marketplace right now. Um, at that time, you know, also net when we were shooting it, Netflix and Amazon were just starting to pay large numbers. Right. I mean, that really just happened like this year and last year. So, um, but you know, Amazon is not, it, this isn't an Amazon film. So you also have to know like who you, who is your audience and who are you selling to? And we all from the beginning were like, we want to sell this to A24 because they have, they're the type of company that has unique product and they take risks and they have interesting, creative ways of marketing a film that are not traditional. Mm-hmm. And that's what we wanted. And luckily, we got it. So that was freaking awesome. You know, and A24, I'm glad you brought them up because they truly are. They really step up to the plate with these small films, but these films that are so untraditional. Yeah. And it they found their niche. And they do have wonderful marketing ideas for their distribution plan. Yeah, and they're different for every film, and that's what I like about them. I mean, for me, I went this year to go see Moonlight, and the way I saw it was I saw it downtown with a live orchestra, um, and it was incredible, you know, and, like, not many distribution companies are like, oh, I'm going to do that. That's going to be one way we're going to sell tickets. Like, I paid $45 for my movie ticket. But it's <laughs> it's so worth it for the experience yeah. because it uh, Moonlight, number one, the score is beautiful. So you do – having an orchestra had to be fantastic. Oh, it was so good. It was – and then, and it was my favorite movie of the year. And, of course, then it is – James Laxton's cinematography is stunning. Yeah. Stunning. And the editing, because of that triptych fashion – the way the film is constructed, it is top notch. You know, and editing is something here on Swiss Army Man that is also so crucial. You know, you've got Matthew Hannum as your editor. Yeah. And the guy is just, he did James White last year. He's done Into the Forest. I first really took note of Matt when he edited Brandon Cronenberg's Antiviral. Mm. And see- yeah, I mean, I didn't see Antiviral, but one of the companies that I'm a partner in for distribution, the Film Arcade, released James White, and so I was familiar with his work. I mean, he's how involved are you in the below the line in the in bringing on your editors, your cinematographers, your composers? Um, the keys, the key positions, pretty yeah, very involved. 
um, and most producers are, most, most creative producers are, are involved in those decisions. I mean, you're at least discussing them. And you're giving, you know, you're giving your directors suggestions as well. But most of the time, you know, a good, I think, you know, kind of a sign of, of a good filmmaker is someone who already knows who they want to work with, whether or not they can or not, is a different situation because, you know, it's all about availability or how much you can pay or whatever. But, like, if a director comes in and says, this is who I want as my cinematographer, this is who I want as my composer, this is who I want as my editor, you know that they have a solid grasp of what they're trying to make. Mm -hmm. And there are so many directors that I'll have meetings with who are like, well, whoever you want me to do, I'll do it. And you're like, "Um, okay, that's not going to work. No, because they have no right at the forefront. They have no vision. Yeah. But I could definitely give them lots of people (laughs) because, you know. But, you know, then again, you know, the first half of the show, I was playing, you know, the bulk of my one-on-one with cinematographer Greg Frazier, who did Lion. And a lot of, you know, one of the big reasons he came on Lion was because of his relationship with director Garth Davis. They'd Mm. done commercials and things before. This was the first time they did a feature. But... Garth knew he wanted Greg. Greg knew he wanted to work with Garth. And, you know, as you said, you've got to have an idea of who's out there, what you're striving for, and who you think can achieve it. Yeah. Yeah, and it also shows, like, you know, like, you know what your, what your film is kind of comparable to, let's say. Or, you know what I mean? Now, Swiss Army Man, that's different. Um, I was, there wasn't any films comparable to Swiss Army I, I was just going to ask you, Miranda, um, and what was comparable to Swiss Army Man? <laughs> yeah, no, there, there, there wasn't, you know. Um, and that's why I think we were lucky enough to end up with the film before any of the other companies did, because we didn't need a comp. And all of the other kind of bigger indie companies around did need a comp. They were like, well, it's not Weekend at Bernie's, but it's not blah, blah, you know, zombie movie. I'm not sure, you know. (laughs) They couldn't, and like, that was, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can make my own decisions and I don't have to go through like a team of executives because at the end of the day, I get to make the decision what we do or don't do. Mm -hmm. What was the most challenging aspect of the actual logistics in making Swiss Army Man? Um, I'd say the different locations that we were at. I mean, we um, we basically went in three different locations. One, we shot in Half Moon Bay. That was very great and easy. We got this wonderful piece of land. Um, and then we shot here in Los Angeles, um, did some some water work here, and we used Bronson Canyon Cave and did some stuff here. And then we also... Um, went to Humboldt, but Humboldt, um, and I actually, that was the one piece that I didn't go on because we needed to have a much smaller crew because everyone was like trucking in. It was just like 10 people. That's all we could afford to go. And also like, it was not easy. And I know, I mean, I was talking to Jonathan, he was there every day and it's, it was very hard on the crew and the cast, those last four days in Humboldt because you're like, you know, you're literally walking in for, with all this equipment and everything for like an hour before you start shooting. Oh my so it's God. like you're hiking in the woods. <laughs> so it was, uh, that, I think that was, I think that was very challenging, but you know. You know, I've talked to so many directors over the years, um, first time directors that embark on water work. Uh, many of them have no clue what they're getting into. When you're working with water, from a producing standpoint, you know, does that give you any kind of trepidation or concern with a film? Mm, I mean, everything's really hard. I mean, driving work is hard. Any kind of stunts are hard. I mean, working at night, working in the snow. I mean, there's lots of different things. So it's like, it's just another one of those things. Like, I don't think it's any harder necessarily then also working with kids, like which is another thing, which is really, you know what I mean? <laughs> Everything has its, there's nothing that's easy when you're mm-hmm. making a movie. So, you know, no, uh, if you have enough money to afford it, then you should do it. it, it so what you're saying is people, more money, more money for my next projects. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I also, I don't know what's going on with the industry right now. I think it's really kind of up in the air. And um, I, other than, you know, a very, very small group of companies are paying a lot of money for their movies. Mm-hmm. And it's really the, you know, Amazons and the Netflix. Um, so the majority of movies are not going through that. Right. That are indie movies that are being made. And so the other distributors um, and theatrical releases and TV and everything that's going on, it's really kind of, it's all scrambled up right now. No one knows what to do. You just have to, like, make your movie for, I think, as low of a budget as possible to keep the vision. But that sucks because then, you know, you don't get paid very well. Right. Unless you sell it for bigger. And and that's not easy. Mm-hmm. But that's the risk we take when we finance and produce indie films. Now, you're also an actress. You have appeared at least in a walk-on in, I think, every film you've produced. No, not all of them, but less. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. I should have been in Super. You should have been. I, did, I wasn't because I decided to spend New Year's Day with my my son. Uh, you know, <sighs> I, you know. Do you know how good that would be? That ne- see now and see if you had done that instead of being with your son on New Year's Day. Now he could go around and say, "See, my mom was in a film directed by James Gunn, Guardians of I the Galaxy." Done it. Gee, oh. does, but Ted was like, oh, do you want to be this role or this role? And I was like, I do. When does it shoot? He was like, January 2nd. And I was like, no. <laughs> now, no. you have directed some shorts, and I think you just finished directing a documentary, Pathological Optimist, or you're getting ready to? Yeah, no, I did. I, um, I directed a documentary called Greenlit, which premiered at, Sunday, at South by Southwest in 2010. Mm-hmm. That was my first. Um, I'd say directing a filmish film experience. And so that was a lot of fun and it was about the film industry. And then, um, I started on my second one, which right around then. So over the last seven years, I've been working on the pathological optimist and I'm finally finished and we are figuring out the release plan right now, but it's a very touchy, um, subject that I followed, uh, person and he's a highly, Toxic, I'd say. <laughs> so it's, we have to be very careful. Oh, my. Now, do you think, because you have directed, because you have acted, do you find that those skill sets uh, assist you as a producer? Um, yeah, for sure. And I also feel that producing helps me with acting and directing. So they all kind of work together. I mean, for me... I just really love making movies and telling stories. So whether I'm acting in it or directing it or, um, you know, ghostwriting on it or, uh, you know, producing it, it all kind of depends on what, you know, the circumstances of the project and the people that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask, you've got a great relationship with the Spirit Awards over the years. We see quite a few repeat performances by Miranda Bailey with her films at the Spirit Awards. How exciting was it for you this year when Swiss Army Man picked up that Best First Feature nomination? Oh, my God. It was the be- it was great. You know, last year when Diary of a Teenage Girl was nominated, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that meant me. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I don't know, I just... And everyone was congratulating me, and I was like, thanks. I don't know why everyone's congratulating me. Like, you know, it's Mari's movie. It's best first feature because it's not my first feature, you know. And then, like, two weeks before we were going, did I actually realize that I was specifically nominated as a producer on that. So that was kind of funny. (laughs) So, And I will tell you, like, finding that out was great because I feel that so many times producers do not get – Acknowledged for all of the creative work that we put into films. That's right. And and the Spirit Awards definitely does that with with this category of first time filmmaker because that's also who I really like to work with is giving people kind of like their their first chance. Yeah, I mean this is this is pretty exciting for you two back to back best first feature nominees. 
I know. I really hope I win. It was a lot of fun. Well, <laughs> I can tons of free booze. Well, <laughs> I can tell you, as a member of Film Independent, I have already cast my ballots. Well, I hope you voted for Swiss Army Man, <laughs> but I won't, I won't bother you on that. There's lots of good movies. <laughs> there were. This was a very, very tight year. Yeah. But I've got to say, for a best first feature, this is this is right up there. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Well, see, uh, I hope, I hope. There are so many of us that worked on this movie. You know, there are six producers on this film, two directors. It's, you know. Do you, how how was that experience with having two, two co-directors? You know, it was great. It was really, really great. Um, those two guys, Daniel and Daniel, work so well together. You know, one one is really focused on one thing, one's on another. They really tag team. They're both there. It's really, um, I'm really excited to see what they do next, to be honest. And, of course, if they come to you with something good, you'll produce it. Oh, yeah. I definitely would. But I think they'll probably go to Marvel. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but... You know, well, we when I find that when I find the really good ones, they go on. I mean, Mari's doing Fox Searchlight movie right now, and we know where James uh, Gunn went. <laughs> yeah, James Gunn went to Marvel. <laughs> These guys will go to Marvel. So, you, you know, know, you need. But to- I got Mike Birbiglia's second, which was great, and then Lake Bell's second, which was great, and I got to see how actor, writer, director, actor, producers work, um, and they were both very different, and it was really quite fascinating to learn from both of them well all i know is i can't wait to see what you bring us next miranda i am just i am just as you know as i was looking over your whole list of films i'm like okay i love this one i love this one this got a great review i gave this a great review i gave this a great review it's like i look back through all the films that you know indie films that i have championed and reviewed over the years and I think virtually every one that you have done is I've covered. Yeah, oh, that's good. You know, I, a lot of them no one's seen. <laughs> well, you know, who knows? <laughs> one day we'll do a Miranda Bailey retrospective. <laughs> yeah, let me let me get to like past my fifties. Uh, Miranda, <laughs> thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you're watching the movies and telling other people to watch them. And I will see you on the blue carpet. Yes, see you there. I will be there. Miranda okay. Bailey, Swiss Army Man. For all you film independent people out there, that, members, you can still vote. If you have not voted, you can vote. Swiss Army Man, best first feature. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Miranda. See ya. Bye-bye. And that was Miranda Bailey, producer of Swiss Army Man, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Paul Dano, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I, it is it is one of the most unique films, if you haven't seen it. It is one of the most unique films you will ever see. Um, Daniel Radcliffe playing a dead guy, Swiss Army Man. Works for me. So... Should we take a short break, Brian, and then come back and, and go out? Or, Well, no, we only have a minute. We have a minute left. So, I wanted to add earlier when uh, we were playing the clips and they said that we should be used to cameras being around in Hollywood. Every time I see one, I stop and I watch. So, no, we don't get used to it even if we're out here. Oh, when Greg was talking about shooting the gambler on Sunday, yeah. If I saw John Goodman on the street, I wouldn't just be like, oh, there's John Goodman. I'd be like, oh, there's John Goodman. And I would run over to him, probably tackled before security before I get anywhere near him, and then escorted off the premises I'm one to, to do. Brian, Brian, Brian. Well, you know, next week we've got a real treat for you because we are celebrating the... 20th anniversary or 25th of Wayne's World? I think it's 25th. 25th right, of Wayne's 90, World. 1991? Yeah. So we have some very special guests who will be joining us live next week for that. And, of course, Film Independent members, if you're listening, don't forget to vote for the Spirit Awards. Academy members, your voting is also opening up now. So... You heard from an incredible cinematographer today. We've heard from a great producer. We'll, we'll have more award stuff in the next few weeks while voting is still open. Uh, and in the meantime, this is Debbie Elias for Behind the Lens. <laughs>